Well, it is a joy that I get to do this ever so often. Um, was it a few weeks ago, Bill Bider was giving a teaching, and he prefaced it with saying, you know, when Mike and, and Kent get up, that's kind of your A and B team that come up here and teach. And then he goes on to say, but, you know, Larry and I, we're kind of C and D team. So, you know, that leaves you guys room to fill in the gaps what team I'm on here. So, <laughs> anyhow, uh, I'll take what I can get. It has been a while since I've taught. Um, it has been a while, and so I know there's new faces here that don't necessarily know who I am. My name is Steve Green. Uh, I'm on staff here at Lion and Lamb Church for about a year and a half. I work primarily with college students. Hello, college friends. It's good to see you. Um, and that's the group that I work with primarily. Um, if you have your Bibles, there's few Bibles. Uh, there's some underneath your seats. Turn uh, to Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 7. We'll get started. Uh, for, if you have a pew Bible, it's actually page 977. We'll be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning there, uh, let me go ahead and set the background a bit. Uh, Ephesians is, is different than a lot of letters that Paul writes. Oftentimes, Paul, when he's writing, uh, will have an occasion for the reason why he's writing. Sorry, friends downstairs for having that in the way. Um, an occasion for why he's writing. Uh, so instance, in, in Corinthians or Romans, he... Galatians, he tells, this is why I'm writing you today. However, in Ephesians, it lacks that sort of introduction. It's a general letter that's written to all people uh, in the town of Ephesus, uh, primarily Gentile Christians. Um, The main theme, if there was a theme for Ephesians, is that because of Christ's work, redemptive work, we are to be unified. Uh, Christ's church is to be unified, and we'll see that especially in this passage. And And that unification has implications in all areas of life, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, whether it's your work. The call to unity is is in all these different uh, areas of life. So let me read this passage, verses 1 through 6, aloud. He He says, I therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of peace, or of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Sorry. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, we do give you thanks for bringing us here together this day. Lord, who knows uh, what's going on in our lives. For some of us, um, today is a great day. For some of us, we're mourning. For some of us, we're just just glad that we just got enough energy to even come here. Well, Lord, we come from all different stories and backgrounds, but we are here. And so we'd ask that you would, um, in your mercy and in your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you reveal your Son Jesus Christ to us all, and Lord, in this time, would we move to teaching, to worship, in which we glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hell is a grayish place. So is C.S. Lewis's description of hell and a great divorce, right? Uh, See, it's an often overlooked book, but it's a great book. I listened to it again uh, on audio tape this week, and it's just this incredible story of a man who wakes up 
And he's immediately at this bus stop, and he's unsure where he's at. And, but it's different. This place, it's described as the gray town. It's a place that is always on the brink of, of twilight, but never quite. Always looking like it's going to turn evening, but never does. Always looks like the rain's going to break, but it never does, right? And it's this really interesting description of, of, of hell. But what's really interesting about Lewis's description of hell is the people, the people that reside there. Right? These are miserable, miserable people. They, they can't stand each other. So they're waiting at a bus stop and they get so annoyed with one another that they end up leaving and going back to their places. They may have been traveling for 15 years to get to that bus stop, but they, they leave anyhow. They are, they are people who are uh, angry, argumentative, lacking both patience and humility. They, they, they're getting on the bus. When they finally get on the bus, they begin feuding with one another. Uh, a gunshot goes off, and everybody seems like that's just normal, normal life within this community. It's an awful, awful, awful place. And so as I was pre- preparing this teaching and uh, reading Paul's words here, I wondered where if C.S. Lewis might have borrowed some of, of his contrasting picture of hell with this picture of the way in which Christ's church, his body, is supposed to live together. Lewis's picture of the town is a place of self-chosen alienation and disunity. And yet Christ is calling his church to be a place of vibrant unity. I think Paul sees this as well in this letter to the Ephesians. He seems to understand this temptation. That even though that place represents hell, that what Lewis is getting at and what Paul is getting at is that we are all deeply tempted to be gravitating towards alienation and disunity. I find it interesting, I've only been in ministry for about a year and a half, and so I still have a lot to learn, but one thing that I notice is that when the, the, the stove of your life gets turned up, the first things, the most important things to go are always, always the most important things. Ironically, in seminary, I remember having papers I'd have to write, and I would be like, I don't have time to read my Bible this morning because I have to work on this Bible paper, right? How ridiculous is that, right? The thing that I needed most is the thing that I neglected. And you know, that's true about community as well. Usually when people aren't doing well, like when they're going through some sort of trial or some sort of crisis or some sort of conflict, you know, they just stop kind of coming to small group. They stop attending churches frequently. And, that, and that's the thing that I think Paul says. That's actually what we need the most. Paul knows that we are tempted to become inward focused and self-centered and that those postures have no place in the life of God's people. I think what this passage is saying is that since Christ has saved his people, we must be unified. And it works its way out in kind of three points that I've listed in your outline. First, that preserving unity requires us to walk in light or with regards to our calling. Second, we must grow in maturity Third, we must maintain community. Those are the three points. That's where um, I'm going today. If you have your hand out, we can go ahead and get started. First, walking according to our calling. Paul says this in the very first couple verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Well, perhaps you're like me when I first read this verse is you immediately begin asking yourself, okay, Paul, but what am I being called to? What am I being called for? What, what is this that you're referring to? And, and I think you have to, in order to uh, know that, you have to go through Ephesians 1 through 3 to get there. But 
those questions of calling or purpose, right, those are fundamental to the human experience. Like we all, every human being asks that question, what's my meaning? What's my purpose? What significance do I have in, in the life of others and for myself? And Paul, in, in chapters 1 through 3, lists all these wonderful things. He's, he's making this argument that since Christ has done all these things, you now have this type of life. And so what are those things? Let me hit just a few of them. There's a ton that are chock full of different ones. These are the highlights of the first three chapters in Ephesians 1 through 4. Paul says that believers, those that know Christ, are holy and blameless before him in love. In Ephesians 1.5, it says that we have been called to be identified as sons of God or children of God. Further, our, our calling recognizes that Christ has paid the cost for our sins, that we have been redeemed, that we are seen as redeemed. Because of this, both Jews and Gentiles, as Paul goes on in two, chapter 2, 13 through 16, he says that we are all Jews and Gentiles, now a new humanity, a new household. In 2.19, a new family. And this is all serving for a purpose in Paul's letter. He's working to chapter 3. And in, in chapter 3, verses uh, 2 through 9, he says that we are in, in called to embrace this new nature, this new identity, so that God may display his grace and the riches of Christ by those that are called the church. That we would display, as he, he calls it, the manifold wisdom of God. So our, our calling has, is, has to be rooted in our identity and what Paul says about us. In essence, Paul is saying, as we get to chapter 4, this is kind of where it turns, he's saying, since Christ has done ABC, therefore you are now to live XYZ. Do you, you get that feeling? He's about ready to tell us you need to be doing these certain things, but it's not just a blanket command. It's rooted in what Christ has done and ultimately what our identity looks like. We are to, because of this calling, because of all these new, new things, we are to root ourselves uh, in this identity and all of our relationships, all of our responsibilities, all of our habits, all of our practices, all of our values need to be connected to this reality in chapters 1 through 3. I, I, and, we, and in that, we need to work in a way that honors and reflects a worthy walk according to our calling. Now, this is kind of tricky maybe to understand, but we really get this when we see politicians fail, right? We see it all the time. A scandal comes out. You know, this politician was caught doing this thing that's illegal. And what, what's immediately, usually, the discussion that it, that turns to? We need, they'll say, this person needs to resign because they are walking in a way that is unworthy of the calling of that office, right? The, that moral failure does not represent the walk of what the, that office is contains or is expected. It, it, it misses the mark, right? And I, I think that's really helpful to see that, that, that we are called to a certain way of living in our conduct. And that's not to say, and I hope you hear this, that we in some way earn our place before God. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Ephesians 1, you can't, you can't earn your place by good works or by being a nice person or being open-minded or loving. You have to, you have to be saved by Faith in Christ. Right? That's not what he's saying, but he is, he is calling us to something. He is calling us to something that, is, that requires something of us that is not only a requirement, but a privilege. So let me ask you, um, according to this handout that I listed some qualities, you know, the question is, do you really believe this about yourself? 
do you really believe that you're redeemed? If you know Jesus as your Savior, do you really believe that about yourself? Do you believe that you are holy and blameless before a holy and righteous God because of what Christ has done? Do you believe that you are a part of a new household of God? See, because, uh, you know, again, I work with college students, and so oftentimes their stories are stories filled with anxiety because partially they said, they grew up in households where it says, you have to do better before I love you. You have to have it all together before I accept you, right? And some of us, that's part of our own stories. We've heard that from people. And so it's hard for us to believe this, but I can assure you, on God's word in Ephesians that just as eight or two plus two is four, so does God call his sons and daughters, his people, redeemed. And just as much as the sun will set in the west and sets in the west, so will God and God identifies you as a new family within the household of God. And so part of the way I guess we can apply these things is by taking serious God's word that he really does see these things about his people. And that, that I think, helps provide purpose for our lives. Right? When we, we, well, then it wants it about the fact that God, there is this love for God and for what he has done. It, begins easy, it becomes more easier to walk. So that's, that's just one thing to think about. Another is, is for people in this room and down, consider, I don't, it's one thing to think about. Another is, is for people in this room and down below, I don't consider, I don't assume that everybody here is a Christian. But really, this is a question down below. I don't, don't find, or I don't assume that everybody here is a Christian. But really, this is a question of, if, if you don't find your calling or purpose in Christ, where do you, where do you get it from? Is it, is it your job? Is your job going to give you purpose and meaning? Sure, it, it, might, it might feel like you have purpose. Like if that's the ultimate meaning, meaning, but if, if somebody takes away that job, do you still have meaning? Do you still have purpose? What about family? What about relationships? You just have to go on through life long enough to know that relationships, outside of Christ, they're, they're always going to fail you. If you're going through life, like that's how I'm going to be known is whether or not people like me or love me. Like that's always going to fail you. But what about money? What, what about the accumulation of things? Well, it only takes the 2008 crash to know that those things are fleeting, that they will never, never satisfy. And if it's power, I just want to have influence over people. I want to be in a place in which I can kind of be a a center stone of people's decisions. Well, you just need to look at history books and see that there has been a history of emperors and kings that have long, long been forgotten. And so will we. One day we will die and we will, our place in history will be not even close to significant. See, it's only, it's only in the person and work of Christ in which true purpose, true meaning, true calling can be identified as. And so, if you're, if, you're, if you're not sure where you're at, I would ask you to consider the gospel, that Jesus died for you and that he's raised so that we might have life. So, those are, so what are, uh, kind of moving on, some components of a worthy walk? Well, Paul notes this in verse 2, that walking... In a worthy way is a way that reflects our calling. There's going to be things that we're going to do. We're going to grow in maturity. There are three qualities that, that sound noble that Paul lists. They sound so great, don't they? Peace, or excuse me, patience, humility, gentleness. But my wife and my kids can say, man, daddy, he really needs to grow in these areas. You know, 
They sound so great, but this is our call. This is what we're called to. This isn't just, just optional. Right? We, this is something I have to work towards. We are called to these three things. And notice that these three qualities right, are, are famously couched as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We can give entire sermons on these qualities, but I just want to briefly touch on, on what these qualities look like in the Bible. Uh, I like uh, the King James Version of the rendering of humility and gentleness as lowliness and meekness. As one commentator, commentator notes that within the Greek context outside of the New Testament, uh, these words were usually, especially humility, was kind of a, used as a derogatory term to define somebody of, uh, who takes kind of a shameful lowliness or posture of servility. Uh, however, that's not the kind of picture that Paul is imagining here, obviously. Uh, Christ and uh, Jesus in his gospel, uh, of, gospel of Matthew asks people to seek refuge in him for he is both humble and gentle. Paul in his hymn to the uh, Philippians talks about how Jesus has humbled himself to the point of willingness on a death and a cr- on a cross. I think Jesus and Paul are redeeming these words. Yes, it means this in, in your context, but under the context of this new humanity, it means something entirely different. It's something that we are to, to work towards. Christ was humble and gentle, so it, it follows. It has to follow that we as his people, as his followers, should do the same. A- another thing, um, when he talks about patience, I love that term patience because in the, in the, the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, um, that word for patience that's found in this is often used to describe God's sort of patience with enduring his people. Long-suffering as it's sometimes defied define, willing to suffer with somebody's blunders so that the sake of, of um, allow, here's a better definition, uh, patience meaning the ability to make allowances for other shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into rage or desiring vengeance. These are the things to which we are to grow in. We're to grow in humility, gentleness, and patience. So what type of person are you becoming? Uh, yeah, I like C.S. Lewis. I like his stuff. He, I made this comment on social media. He gives me almost every sermon illustration I ever use. And so I have this, this is on your handout. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. And he says, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. Think about that. Every time you make a choice, <laughs> going for that extra donut, Right? You're, you're turning into something different, for good or for bad. For me, extra pounds. Anyhow, I digress. You're, you're choosing to be something different than before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, think about that, all your life choices, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war, and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. What kind of person are you becoming with regards to these three areas? Are you growing or shrinking in patience, in humility, in gentleness. 
as we look at our lives, or maybe more helpfully as others look at our lives, those that love us, those that are with us a lot, are they seeing steady growth in the area of patience and in humility? For instance, do you invite others in humility? Do you invite others to speak truth to your life? One of the scariest quotes I ever read, and I'm dead serious when I say this, the author says this, he was a pastor, and he says, be, be very careful that you do not be taken hold of this, the sin of pride. And there will be a moment, because there could be a moment, and people that love you the most, who call you the closest companions in their life, will simply stop speaking the truth out of concern that you will never listen to them. That is terrifying, that I might be so deceived by my own pet sin that people have simply said, I guess that's just the way Steve is. Do not be taken by the sin of pride because it does not allow us to, as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Do you invite others to speak truth? Or do you find yourself tempted to guard the walls of self as soon as someone, even those who love you most, criticize you? Do you view yourself higher than you ought to? Or, you know, there's also a sense of false humility, right? Somebody that that always apologizes, right? That is always the one that kind of makes sure before they, they take the last spot in line that everybody is sitting down so they can see the person who has humbled themselves to wait, right? Like that's, that there's, a fault, there's, a, there's an other view of that that's actually not humility, right? But we can kind of mask it as that. Um, one way that we can grow in humility, and I think this is one of the most profound ways, is that we, we become more aware of our sin and where we've fallen short and know that we've been redeemed in the whole, in, by a holy and just God, that, that as we become more aware of our sin, that we can actually uh, turn from it, repent from it, and just, and just know that the, the, pers- the, the God that which we've offended frees us, or freely forgives us, and it's a holy and just God. So th- that's, that's one, one area. What about gentleness? Uh, gentleness, do you, do you stab others with your words for the sake of speaking the truth in love? <laughs> have no concern for uh, somebody else's well-being. Rather, you just want to take them down a notch. You just want to tell them a piece of your mind. Or are you, are you gentle with them? Are you graciously using words like Paul talks about in Colossians? Are you striving to make sure your conversations are salted with grace? Are you known for quick temper by those who love you? Or as James speaks, slow to anger. Finally, are you maturing in growth with patience with others? This is so ironic. I'm at Dylan's getting a, a protein bar on the way to church, and here I am thinking, man, this guy in line in front of me is taking a long time. I got to be somewhere. I got I got a sermon on patience to teach. Like I'm, I'm not. I didn't make this up. Like that literally went through my head while I was in line at Dylan's. Right? You know what? You know the reason why I thought that was because I thought that my time to be here was more important than his, right? Ultimately, I had a high self, I had a high perspective, a false perspective of myself, and a low perspective of this elderly person who has just as much important time as I do, right? How quickly does that, does that creep into our lives, that lack of patience? It, 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 you just take a moment and you can see that, but that is not, I'm not excusing that. I'm saying that that is, that is my my weakness, right, my fallenness in that moment. And we need to, as a community of God, strive towards maturing in those areas. What person are you becoming? 
in light of the call that Christ has placed in our lives. Which brings us to kind of the last point in the handout. Since Christ is building his church, we are to maintain uh, community. Really what Paul's saying is unity, but Mike, you know, I love community. And if I can ever just fit that into a main point, I will. And so I did. And so it's, it's unity and it's community, it's both. And I'll try to make an argument, probably too hard, that it, it, should, it could be community easily. But we are to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to pursue that maturity and we are to maintain that as, as people in God's family. We are to maintain community, and it looks like this in the rest of Paul's, uh, this passage in Paul's letter, in love and peace and also in the very nature of God. The end of verse 2 ends with a charge to bear with one another in love. Forbearance might be another word that's used in your translation. Paul uh, may not have known everybody. I've already mentioned that. He didn't know everybody that was in the church uh, at Ephesus, but he, he knew that uh, this temptation to become disunified is something that, that he had been seeing in his own ministry and knew that that would be a temptation for uh, this community. And so he tells them to bear with one another in love. Now, what I, what I love is that Paul uses a definition of love that we're very familiar with in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that we are to love. He says, you know, what is, what is love? What does it look like? Well, as he says, love is patient. This is 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, uh, we have some young couples that are about ready to get married, and some of you are like, Steve, you just took my wedding passage. You know, and it's true. We use this in, in weddings a lot, and it's a good thing. But you know the thing with that that's kind of we've, we miss is that Paul wrote this to a church in Corinth that had known nothing but division and disunity, right? It, we can use this for a passage in marital ceremonies. That's great. I'm all for that. But we forget the fact that Paul is using this to describe a type of love that should be characterized by, you, by all of you. And so for us too, this is a love that we are supposed to have for one another. This isn't optional. This is what Paul is telling us it's supposed to look like. Love isn't just this thought. It's this action. It, love is patience. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. You know, we, we're not to be, when somebody's telling, telling you about their, their trials, you're not supposed to say, well, if you think that's bad, this is, this is my story. No, that's, that's boasting, right? It does not insist on its own way. Excuse me, it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't, doesn't talk down to other people and say, why can't you, you get it all together? There's a, there's a, a sense of, of kindness there. It does not insist on its own way. We're in a new church building. I can assure you that a lot of the leaders do not get their way in a lot of those meetings that, that go on. And it's great to see that, and I'll have a story related to that. But they don't insist... On their, a lot of times they don't get their own way. And that's a true mark of love and, and that the elders have had. And there's a lot of things that I know in our perfect church building we would love to have. We'd love to have more space. We'd love to not have these pink pews. Or maybe we would. Maybe I just stepped on somebody's toes. But, you know, love, it's okay. It's okay that we have different opinions. And Paul makes that argument in, uh, later on in Ephesians that he's given a plurality of gifts, and a plurality of callings so that we can actually build up together and so it doesn't necessarily, um, we do not insist on our own way. It's not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That, family, friends, that's what love is supposed to look like in our lives at this small church. It is bearing with one another. Second, uh, Paul tells us that we must pursue peace with one another. Paul, um, Paul knows that, again, that we, have, we are tempted to be alienated. God knows that we are tempted to be alienated. And so peace has to be, has to be foundational to what we seek within personal relationships. Meaning, our lives look different than the, than the world's. The world, what, it, what does the world look like in conflict? It's, we get really mad, we blow up, and we either never talk to each other again, or we just pretend it never happened. And that's not, that's not what the gospel shows. That's not what Paul says. Peace, true peace in the, in the practice of a Christian, looks to become a peacemaker, to reconcile with one another as best we're able. That's what it looks, that's what it looks like to maintain peace, to some extent, is, is being willing to handle conflicts, but also to let things go. Not everything has to be a conflict. You don't have to tell somebody everything, every little thing that might annoy you about that person, right? There's, there's a sense of prudence there, right? Paul goes on to say that there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the, the verses sound tricky. There's a lot going, there's a lot of ones there. And I think this is kind of what is going on that Paul's saying is that really to this third little sub-point in this, in this idea is that he is um, reflecting the very nature of God, right? God is triune in nature. He is both three persons and one, right? A mystery that is, is you know, absolutely mind-blowing. And so this is the thought that I think that he's, 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 he's kind of giving us that we are called together by God the Father through the work of Christ into one body of Christ or Lord and given new life or new natures by the power of one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Right? Different parts of the God have, had have a different role within bringing us to faith and bringing us alive. He also talks a little bit about that in Ephesians 1, um, which is a sermon for another day. But it's a very beautiful picture of God working together within himself, within the Trinity, to bring us into newness of life. And then as, as John Stott, I think, is correct in identifying that, that, that those comments about one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one family, all allude to our Christian experience in relation to the Trinity. So here's what I think. I think God is, Paul is saying that reflecting on just the character of God, do you do that? Do you ever just reflect on God's mercy, God's kindness, God's justice, God's sovereignty, right? And that really informs the way in which we live. In the same way we're to, to think about the way in which God is triune and at peace within himself and in, in, in unification and purpose with himself. And therefore, that is our call to be together as Christian brothers and sisters. And so I'm going to invite you now to do something a little awkward, not too awkward. And downstairs, I'll find out whether or not you actually did this. But would you just look to your left and your right? Just the neighbors beside you. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Just look. You guys are like eyeball. Yeah, right? Now, let me ask you. How do you view them? Just people? Inhabiting a, a mildly confined space? Or do you see them as, as seriously as brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you, would you uh, bear with one another in love? Would you do that? Would you? What is, what is God calling you to? See, 
I can remember a story before moving to St. Louis where I'm not an elder or deacon, but I've had the opportunity and the privilege to sit in those meetings. And I can remember one of the elders saying, you know, you know, men, I know at this point that if something was to happen to me, I know that you guys would look out for my family. And I know this church would take care of my family. And I don't know how many times that I've been in a, a meeting with those men and they have said, wherever we go from here, I want, we want more than anything, more than anything for us to be unified together. If it's not unanimous, then it's a non-start. We, like, we want to reflect Ephesians 4 and the life of our leadership. And I think that, to me, has been a constantly a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Paul is calling. First of all, because I'm just thankful that God has given us men like the men that serve in our church to be as unified in mind as they are. But also, it's a beautiful picture of the, the willingness to prefer the interest of others for the sake of community so that Christ might be glorified. It is a, a beautiful picture. And so, will you, is your desire to walk in peace and love with one another? This can take its form in several ways. But really, a basic point is, is, is the question of, are you in community you know, this, we, we the, I, I don't want to misspeak, but um, part of our value of a church is fellowship. It's part of our DNA. And that means that church isn't just something that you attend on in Easter and Christmas. We don't believe that, right? And then this just happens to be bonus, right? The church is something that is called to be together in community with one another. And so I'm ask, I just want to ask the question, are you willing to uh, be in community with one another? Do, are there people in this room or downstairs that know, that know your story? Or do you keep everybody at kind of arm's length because you know if they kind of got inside your life, they'd start to say things that, are un, that kind of go at and chip away at our idols? The things that we know, like, don't you speak? You can tell me anything else, but don't, tell, don't talk about that. Don't talk about my pride. Don't talk about you know, the way I gossip or whatever that looks like, right? Do you keep people at arm's length? Would you be willing to consider to be and to go into community with one another for the sake of not only so that you can grow, but, and this is really important, and then I'll wind down, so that others might benefit from the gifts that God has given you. Paul's going to make that argument just right following this passage. Uh, I have equipped the whole church with a full spectrum of gifts so that we might glorify God in serving out his mission. You all have been endowed with gifts, if you know Jesus, gifts that God has purposed for you to use. And I know we're all busy, right? We're all busy, right? But that does not excuse us from using the gifts in which God has given us so that we might build up his body. And the great thing is you bless others. I have been, and my wife, Grace, and I, we have been, hey, Ruby, recipients of women and men serving in children's ministry, preach, or explaining the gospel to our little children. And you know what? Their prayers are beautiful. I mean, it's because God has given those gifts to women who feel called to teach little ones, our children are understanding the gospel because of that. We are benefiting and, blessed, and being blessed by the service of others. So this isn't just, this isn't an invitation to say, okay, I guess I'll, 
I guess I'll hold doors for people, you know, as they're leaving. That's not what I'm asking. It's, it's saying, no, you have been give, given a gift by God who is going to bless this church and is going to help grow. And so would you consider that? Uh, I know, I'm not putting this on the elders, but I know uh, that they, they love, would love to have that conversation with, with you of, in ways in which you can serve, or Patty Ann could, could uh, point you in that direction. But are we in the game? Are we in the game? And also, do you see one each other as brothers and sisters? Recalling the great divorce, uh, the bus um, narrator is finally making it to heaven. And upon arriving to heaven, the hell-bound passengers, or the hell-residing passengers, begin to bemoan the fact that they're in this new land. They start to complain because the grass feels like they're walking across diamonds. Uh, even, even leaves even leaves feel like there's this weightiness that they can barely, barely pick it up. It's a beautiful, awesome picture because heaven is real. Heaven has substance to it. Heaven has weight to it, right? The people that, um, that, that are the ones that are choosing alienation, that are choosing this type of disunity, they're the ones that can't handle the realness of, of, of heaven, and so they choose often to go back home to their hellish place. And I think sometimes that that's actually a good description of people and um, people that, that don't necessarily believe in Christianity, uh, that what is ultimately being called to as a Christian is too real. It's too, it has too much substance, right? It's, it's a different type of community. It stretches beyond just a, a spe- special interest group. It stretches beyond just a quilting club or a Harley Davidson riding club or whatever that club looks like, right? It's different. You get a bunch of people in one room who come from completely different walks of life, completely different socioeconomic backgrounds, and we all together collectively say, Jesus is Lord of all. That's different. And I think that that can be just sometimes too, too real for people. And I would just ask for those that, um, that are here, that, and, my, and I myself, as we think about growing in maturity, as we think about walk, walking according to the calling that God has given us, and being and maintaining community, um, in what ways are we keeping ourselves from identifying the, the real things that God means for us? I know you might not like your answers. I know I don't, especially that little episode at the grocery store. But I can tell you that grace abounds at the foot of the cross. And for that reason, it is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this church, literally this, this physical building, building in which we reside, in which you've mercifully gave it to us by your provision. We thank you for the church, these people who continue to be a blessing in my life, in the life of my family, in the life of this church. Lord, I just ask, would you begin to show us ways and help us to understand ways in what um, that you're calling us to walk according to the ways in which sort of characterizes our new life. Father, as we think about the grace that you've shown us, the, the mercy that you've shown us on the cross, Lord, I just pray that that would start to foster this, this spirit of worship now as we go to declare your goodness with, uh, as a group of believers. It's in your name we pray. Amen.